The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 365. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got another one coming out by the end of September. You're going to want to be a member free of charge. You get that free course, and then you get the best deals, the best coupons. So head on over to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one of my courses there. It helps keep the podcast free of charge. You also get something awesome out of it, a great class. It's fantastic. All right, so go do that. Also go to at brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a Brian McClanahan book plate if you want my autograph of one of my books. It's a great way to do that. You can purchase one of my books. I've got a new one out, Southern Scribbling, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. You're going to want that book. It's fantastic, if I do say so myself. And these times we need to understand the bedrock of American conservatism, and you have to find that within the South. Doesn't mean there weren't good Northerners as well, but the South carried on that tradition longer than anyone else in any other section. So you want to you want to understand that, and that's where that book comes into play. You can also go to Learn True T R U E LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom and a lot of the great instructors, and of course, you do help support the show if you purchase a membership there through that link. And always. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Click on that shop tab. Rate the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Share around on social media. Do all those things to help think locally and act locally. And that will continue that process. All right. Well, let's continue our Supreme Court week. We've had a couple of episodes on that. And, of course, in honor of that, I'm giving you a coupon. If you're listening to this podcast to my American Constitutions course, if you use the coupon code RBG, at checkout, you can get 35% off that one class. It's RBG at checkout, 35% off American Constitutions. If you're on my email list, you got a, uh, an email about it yesterday, but you're going to save a ton of money, 35% on American Constitutions. And if you took that class, you would know uh, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about. But I want to talk today about an article. Someone actually sent this to me, and it's. I, I figured I would do this or some other things I was thinking about with Supreme Court Week, and this kind of piggybacks on something that I did yesterday. But it's an article written by a friend of the show, a very good scholar at the University of Cumberland. His name is Aaron N. Coleman. Usually goes by Nathan Coleman, but Aaron N. Coleman. He wrote a great book on the anti-federalist tradition in America, uh, and I highly recommend it. Um, the title of that book is The American Revolution, State Sovereignty, and the American Constitutional Settlement. And um, it's a fantastic book. He also is the co-author of, or co-editor, I should say, of Debating Federalism from the Founding to Today. 
And so this essay appeared at Law and Liberty, which is the Liberty Fund website, in August. So not that long ago, a little over a month ago, but the title is Anti-Federalists and the Roots of Judicial Oligarchy. And I want to go through parts of this and explain some things here. First and foremost, we often hear this term originalism, and what does that actually mean? And then not just that, we'll have people that are called originalists, but they really aren't. They're textualists. Or you have this idea that somehow reading the text of the Constitution will give the meaning of the document. That's actually a very dangerous position. Let me explain why. You can read the text of the document, and you can still be a believer in the uh, idea of an elastic or living Constitution, because certainly the text of the document would open it up to ambiguities. It would be vague in areas. Well, these powers can be implied powers, right? The text of the document gives you that. In fact, you could argue that Alexander Hamilton himself was a textualist. Because as Jefferson said, well, if you read the document, I mean, paraphrasing, you read the document, you can see that there's no such thing as implied powers. Hamilton would say, well, certainly there are. Certainly there are implied powers. If you see necessary and proper, those are implied powers. Right? You could argue that Joseph Story was an originalist. You could argue that John Marshall was an originalist. You could argue that Alexander Hamilton was, orig was an originalist if you use the textualist argument. But if you argue from an originalist position, what does that mean? Well, that means adhering to the Constitution as ratified by the founding generation, particularly those who argued its merits and deficiencies in the public during the ratification process. Now, the danger in that particular position is the anti-federalists in one way. Now, this is essay is in defense of those who oppose the Constitution and what they said about it. But here is what Joseph Story did was flip that on its head. And this is where you get to be a very dangerous position. And that is that Story said, of course, you know, if, if Brutus said the Constitution would create a national sovereignty, well, that's what it did. This is what it was supposed to do. You see, he's using the arguments against the Constitution to support a nationalist position. So there's something dangerous about that, too. But we have to understand those aren't the people we look for. We look to for answers with the meaning of the Constitution. We look to the friends of the document. How was it argued it was going to be interpreted when it was sold to the states for ratification? That is, more importantly, the Constitution to which we should adhere. Now, it doesn't mean that anybody does. In fact, I mean, look, the Constitution has been dead for a very long time. It died in the first Congress. It died a very painful death in the first Congress with the Judiciary Act of 1789. Why? Because of Section 25. I covered this yesterday. But the fact is, if we want to say this Constitution is sacred and sacrosanct and we're going to follow its, its original position, well, then we need to do that, and we need to do it by looking at the friends of the document. Now, all that said, and... and Aaron Coleman wouldn't dispute me on this. But what he's doing here is criticizing conservatives who go out and look to Hamilton and Marshall and others as the basis for their legal positions. And he said, the problem here, the problem here is that you're going to get the Supreme Court we have today. A Supreme Court that's active, a Supreme Court that overrules the state's a Supreme Court that overrules the legislature, a Supreme Court that does that legislates from the bench that does anything it wants to do because it has become the most powerful branch of government. 
In some ways, it has. I still would argue perhaps the executive has done that. But the Supreme Court certainly, I mean, this is the funny thing, as I've said before, and this week, the funny thing about all of this is when you have these progressives running around saying, we need democracy, so give us the bench. I mean, the Supreme Court is the most undemocratic part of the entire political system in Washington, D.C. Coleman says conservatives have only themselves to blame for this predicament, and he's talking about an active court. Many have yet to concede the depths to which progressives have utterly transformed the judiciary. An oligarchy of robed aristocrats now rules, replacing the stability of the rule of the law, or rule of law, with the arbitrariness of, of decision by decision and ex- emanation by penumbra jurisprudence. The expansion of executive power, delegation doctrines, the lack of practical limitations upon congressional authority, the decline of federalism, social issues like abortion, the changing of millennia-long understanding of marriage have all received the Supreme Court's sanction. No element of our lives remains outside of the reach of their power. Yet despite all of the evidence to the contrary, conservatives continue to tout Hamilton's assurances that with the right people in place, the judiciary would prove to be the least dangerous branch because it had neither force nor will, while the absence of the sword and the purse were to render the court powerless. History ever has not been so sanguine to Hamilton's assurances. What makes this all the more frustrating is how, rather than push back against these aberrations, conservative groups work within the progressive paradigm of judicial supremacy. They continue to fail to get the decisions they want, and the supposedly right person fails time and again to live up to expectations. All this is compounded by the guilt and shame that comes from effectively embracing the progressive elements that have so grotesquely misshapen the Constitution. I mean, he's spot on here. Look, you can't just keep putting someone on the bench and hoping that things are going to change. This is something I said in the first week, first episode of this week, how it doesn't really matter who is nominated and who goes there. I said at the end of that, Roe v. Wade is probably not going to get overturned. It might, but I don't think it will. And I don't think it will because I think that politics and the blowback from that will be so profound that they will refuse to do it. Okay. The other things that I've said, look, the, the bench has been no friend of federalism, of limited government, as he says. I mean, we have had conser- quote-unquote conservative justices do more to undermine federalism and the rule of law than any other group. And just look at Obamacare, for example. I mean, look, John Roberts, who is supposedly a conservative, sided with the minority in upholding Obamacare. Right? This, this group is not going to do anything that's going to rock the boat. Coleman continues, this bleak picture of our modern constitutionalism should not surprise anyone who has read the Anti-Federalists. The warnings on the loss of self-governance and liberty through the Constitution's general vices, consolidation, and potential oligarchy, and the vices of the judiciary in particular, should appear to modern readers, those willing to listen at any rate, as prophetic and prescient. Now, this is true. I mean, you can look at the at the opponents of the document. I don't like that term, anti-federalists. I think that that's because they were the real federalists. So you can look at the opponents of the Constitution and say, well, here you have them. Here you have these prophets without honor in so many ways, saying this is exactly what's going to happen, but nobody listened. Now, again, Joseph Story took these people and said, well, this proves the Constitution is a national government. So you can do it that way. <laughs> which is dangerous. Joseph Story is one of the great 
destroyers of real government in America and all of American history. And unfortunately, conservative groups like the Federalist Society continue to run around saying Joseph Story is an originalist. He was anything but. This is one of the worst decisions James Madison ever made in putting Joseph Story on the bench. And tomorrow, I'm probably going to talk about at least a few good Supreme Court judges. I've been asked this before. Who are the good Supreme Court judges? I might give you some examples of those tomorrow. So, he continues, Anti-Federalists equated political liberty with the active participation of the citizenry. Drawing upon history and political theory, Anti-Federalists believed that this relationship best existed in geographically small sovereign republics with a socially homogenous population. Small republics with their modes of participation allowed for the flourishing of republican traits, such as frugality, moderation, and vigilance, necessary to secure and maintain self-governance and liberty. By social cohesiveness, anti-federalists meant communities bound through shared fundamental beliefs. Brutus noted in his first essay, in a republic, the manners, sentiments, and interests of the people should be similar. Small republics made government closer and more responsive to the people, which created a confidence in the people towards their rulers, which emanated from their knowing them, from their being responsible to them for their conduct, and from the power they have of displacing them when they misbehave. Likewise, a federal farmer observed that when representatives had a general sameness as to the residents and interests with those they represented, the potential for tyrannical government lessened and the ever-difficult process of finding and promoting the common good easier. While the clash of interests and beliefs on how to implement the common good proved inevitable, that is the nature of politics, after all. The ability to overcome those differences and to do so without grinding opposition made small republics desirable. Nor was it a mean thing that rulers shared a common fate with those they governed. They returned to live next to those they represented, living under the same laws and suffering the same consequences as their neighbors for their decisions. With an extensive republic, rulers are isolated amongst themselves, circulating in the same social circles, rarely, if ever, experiencing the real-world consequences of their decisions. Well, this is what we have now, an, an establishment class, and this is exactly what he's talking about here. He says, in other words, the Constitution's great, power, Constitution's great powers over territory as vast as the United States threatened to consolidate the states into a national government. Consolidation erased the various circumstances of population, customs, economics, and geography that characterized the state's diversity, replacing it with what the federal farmer described as a uniform system of laws that conflicted with, the, with and proved detrimental to the different laws, customs, and opinions of the several states. With consolidation destroying the states, the Republican self-government and liberty seemed all but inevitable. The uh, destruction of those things, the active participation of citizens deemed essential for successful republics would devolve into nothing more than selecting representatives. Even this exercise seemed little more than chimerical. The large size of districts made it impractical for a large country so large and so numerous to elect a representation that will speak their sentiments. So this is all about scale. This is something I've talked about quite a bit, and this is why, again, you know, think locally, act locally is important. He says the scale of this continental republic threatened not only republican liberty, but the cohesiveness necessary for self-governance. We get rid of cohesiveness, and we get heterogeneous government. And he says, now, where do the anti-federalists fit into this? Anti-federalists fear that a distant and unresponsive legislature would destroy Republican liberty, but that it would also strip citizens of the virtues necessary for self-government. Many anti-federalists foresaw the coming of judicial supremacy. As all constitutional questions fall into the court's domain, 
Brutus saw that the members of the court could enlarge the exercise of their powers and make it superior to the other branches of government. Nothing provided in the Constitution can correct their errors or control their adjudications. From this court, there is no appeal. The supremacy of the Supreme Court, it seems, was by design. Well, this is true. And this is where we get into the problems of this, except there is the state. And this is where Jefferson would interject and say, well, we can. The states can do this. But Coleman continues, nor would the states say from this judicial supremacy. In fact, it would be the seductive instrument of their consolidation. Every adjudication of the Supreme Court on any question that may arise upon the nature and extent of the general government will affect the limits of state jurisdiction. As a creature of the Constitution, the court would invariably lean strongly in favor of the general government and will give such an explanation to to the Constitution as will favor an extension of its jurisdiction. By insensible degree, the court would whittle away at the authority of the states, transferring their powers to the central government. Well, I mean, this has happened over time. He says, history has proven most of the anti-federalist fears correct. That does not mean all is lost, not yet at least. Anti-federalists offer conservatives a lesson on the possibility of constitutional survival. After the anti-federalists lost the political debate in 1788, most did not withdraw from public life. They accepted the Constitution's federal structure and worked tirelessly into their opponents obnoxiously within the state and federal governments to preserve their local lives and check and curb its consolidationist and oligarchic tendencies. But another way, anti-federalists did not despair. They did not condemn the Constitution as illegitimate, nor did they advocate new modes of jurisprudence which only exacerbate the problem of judicial supremacy. While the anti-federalist attitude persisted, consolidation of judicial oligarchy, while not successful in every instance, were held at bay. Only after the passing of that mentality did their prognostications of the Constitution begin to come true. He concludes, before we consign the founders' regime to memory and whispered longings, conservatives must first embrace and actually listen to those who best understood the Constitution's vices. Conservatives must begin the arduous but necessary process of teaching what the anti-federalists knew, that free republics, republicans do not live in a homogenized, consolidated nation. Instead, they respect the sovereignty of the individual state, actively participate in the exercise of its good government, practice the republican virtues of courage and vigilance, and maintain a healthy jealousy over their rights. Once conservatives acknowledge that the anti-federalists were right about consolidation leading to oligarchy, in our case oligarchy by judiciary, they can begin to understand how those same anti-federalists hold the key to ending their reign. So his point is education. His point is, look, when he's talking to people like Richard Brookheiser, who I've mentioned on this podcast before, who would say that Hamilton and Marshall are correct. He's talking to them. Because only then, if they know this, can they understand. I mean, Brookheiser firmly believes in this idea that courts acting as they do would be a multi-headed hydra, a danger to the Union. Well, it's not. The, when this happened in the Confederacy, they proved they could do this when they just had a Supreme Court and the states handled everything else. They proved it could be done, even if it was just for a very short period of time. They proved that this was possible. You didn't need an extensive federal court system to do any of this. And what would happen with this extensive federal court system is just as the opponents of the document predicted, you're going to get judicial supremacy, and not just that, you're going to have consolidation, which was Marshall's design all along. So the question becomes, what to do? Well, again, this is where think locally, act locally means something. What to do, what to do. One thing that has to happen is we have to start encouraging lawyers to become judges who believe in this type of judicial restraint. It's a very hard thing because it's actually going to involve 
as a judge, not doing things that you might want to do uh, and adhering to a much more decentralized view of government to actually say, I don't have jurisdiction here and I'm sending this back. We need people on the federal bench who are originalists, not textualists. And that is a difficult thing to do, particularly when you're taught in law school the common law system, you know, you base it things on precedent. And of course, the court, the federal court system is supreme. All of these things that are problematic for real federalism to work in America. We're going to need legislatures that are capable and have the backbone of standing up to unconstitutional judicial supremacy and unconstitutional federal laws to actually take Jefferson and Madison seriously when they advocated nullification or not just that, the founding generation. Seriously, when they nullified the Stamp Act, for example. I mean, this is what they did. You have to take that as the American tradition, and you have to say that unconstitutional laws are in no force in our, t- in our state, and we're not going to make you adhere to them. Now, this becomes very difficult when the central authority operates on individuals, which it does, in the case of an income tax. How do you nullify an income tax at the state level? Well, you really can't do it. So you're going to have to have something else work there, for example, or not just the income taxes, we have a con- an amendment for that now, but say an individual mandate when it comes to paying health for health care. I mean, how do, you, how do you nullify that? I, I mean, it's difficult. Uh, individuals have to do it, or the states can say we're not going to force you to collect it, but I mean, at the end of the day, if you're doing this on individual tax returns, there's almost no way around it. You're going to have to get a federal judge to declare it unconstitutional. Because the states can't block it. I mean, they can't, when you're talking about individuals, they can say, well, the IRS can't come collect taxes in our state, I guess. They could say they can't come in here to do it. Or if you want to send the IRS, and we're, we're, I mean, we can't stop them, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're going to make it difficult for them. I mean, there's, there's very little they can actually do, though, when it comes to stuff like this. So You have to get the federal government involved if these things are unconstitutional to try to block this legislation, unfortunately. Uh, Because, I mean, this is where, you know, you're you're getting at a point where uh, these uh, these federal laws become uh, obnoxious and it's very difficult to do anything at the state level. Now, I mean, the Tenth Amendment Center is great for this in trying to come up with solutions to these problems vis-a-vis the federal government. If it's something that the states have to do, well, of course, the states can't interpose. Uh, they can say, we're not going to enforce that law. For example, a sedition law. We're not going to enforce that law or something along those lines. Uh, But at the end of the day, this becomes a very difficult process when everything is centralized, when we have one-size-fits-all top-down government, which is what we've gotten to in America. It becomes a mess to unravel. But it does start at the bottom, and people start thinking another way. It's why I've said education is the entire key. We need lawyers, we need legislators, we need people out there who are going to stand up and say, we're not going to take this unconstitutional federal oversight anymore, and we're going to pull back the powers of the federal government, and we're going to free the states up to do these things. It's going to take a bottom-up revolution in that way. And so that's the only way anything's going to change here. And it's why I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court for this week, because, I mean, right now, you have a lefty running around saying, you know what, we'll, we'll just ignore the decision. I mean, that could happen. Look, a president and a Congress could just ignore what the courts say and not enforce. I mean, the court has no power 
if the, if the government doesn't enforce their decrees. There's no power. The states don't have to enforce their decrees, right? I mean, they don't have to. So there's that, but, uh, and that's something that could happen. But uh, at the end of the day, you're going to need people there, in, again, in the government, in the legislatures, in the court systems, in the federal court system, in the state court systems, who are going to do the right thing when it comes to adhering to a real federalist position in America, the originalist position and how the Constitution was sold to the states. I love this essay. I think it's great. And I think he's pointing out that education is the key. And uh, it's a long process, unfortunately, but this is where this podcast comes in. And people like Aaron Coleman are invaluable in this process as well. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Don't forget that RBG coupon. Go to McClanahan Academy. Click on that American Constitutions course. Put in the coupon code RB as in boy G. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG. Get that class for 35% off. You get a great course on the American Constitution, and you're going to know a lot of this stuff through that already. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 